Good morning, Cornerstone. You know, I may be a little biased, but in my opinion, we live in the greatest republic to have ever been birthed into the world. I may be just a little biased about that, but in my opinion, we live in the greatest republic in the world. A republic that is based on the democratic principles of self-rule. A democracy of the people, for the people, and by the people. And our form of government allows us a myriad of benefits. It promotes efficiency in government, guarantees the rights of the people, provides equality, educates people, and it should bring a peaceful transition of power. In our democracy, we make collective decisions not through force of arms and weapons, but in the ballot booth, by the ballot box. Our democracy, something to be admired around the world. Democracy has incredible strength. And yet the concept of democracy, for all its benefits, has an underlying flaw based upon an erroneous assumption. It is the notion that the majority is always right. What an erroneous assumption that is, that the majority is always right. And this misleading assumption demands that the few be silent and accept the positions of the general public whether it agrees or not because the majority will get their way. And what is the punishment if a person, if a group declines to acquiesce to the majority? What is the punishment? What are the consequences if some person or some group is of a different opinion, a different persuasion? and it remains persistent in fighting and going against the grain of our society. What is the punishment? Well, nowadays, the punishment is that that person is shamed, marginalized, as some people call it, canceled and muted. The person who decides to go against the grain of the majority will receive backlash from government, hostile response from corporations, criticism from communities, and in some cases, even violence. This is the cost of going against the grain. And when faced with the prospect of social loss and rejection, many good people shy away from speaking out. Many believers tuck their tails and hide. You know, it is one of the worst things about good people and believers in particular that we can be such cowards. 
that we too easily succumb to the anxiety produced by shame. Peter knew a thing or two about shame anxiety. You know the story when Jesus was arrested. Peter came into the house and saw the Lord stripped and beaten and interrogated, and he became ashamed to be counted as one of Jesus' disciples. He denied being associated with Jesus three times. Shame, afraid of being uncovered, afraid of being made vulnerable. Shame is a powerful weapon of our enemy. There is a natural tendency in each of us to be ashamed of what is true, and to be ashamed of what is right. A natural fear of thinking differently than the masses. It's the kind of foreboding fear that restricts most believers from even sharing their faith. Shame. But last week we read that Paul the apostle was eager to preach the gospel among the most powerful citizens in the world during his time, the people of Rome. A people not big on ideas, but a people who wielded the power of the sword more effectively than any nation before them. Not the kinds of people that you want to disagree with. Not the sort of culture where you would, stand, you would stand a chance against them if you opposed the masses. Paul said, I'm eager. I'm excited to preach the gospel to them. He declares in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not embarrassed by it. I am in no way reluctant to share it and I will not hesitate to proclaim the gospel to the people even in Rome, no matter how polished their arguments might be, no matter how much influence they may wield, and no matter what it might cost me in social, political capital, I will not be shy in my sharing of the gospel. That's what he wants to share. He wants to share the gospel. What is the gospel. Well, Paul gives us the most clear and succinct description of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 5. He says this, I handed down to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. This is the basic, simple gospel message. These three main points, that Christ died for our sins, that Christ was buried, and that Christ raised physically and bodily from the dead. This is the simplest and the least diluted gospel. Unfortunately today, because of shame, many believers fail to share the gospel proper. We prefer to share the gospel's implications rather than the gospel message. We have the social gospel. We have the moral gospel. We have the mystical gospel. And somehow the simple gospel of Jesus Christ becomes muffled in our attempt to be both relevant and non-threatening to the world. We are afraid of the world's power. 
We're afraid of the world's power to shape our temporary destiny. We're afraid of the world's power to cancel us or to corner us, the world's power to relegate us to the outer margins of society, to take away our seat at the table, to remove our voices from the conversation. We are ashamed of the gospel. And it is true that the world has power. The world has a lot of power. And Rome has power. Paul knows it. Rome is the most advanced nation of Paul's day. They understand philosophy. They have a deep appreciation for the freedom to do whatever they want, whenever they want. Paul's message would be viewed by many of them as an affront to their dignity. And Paul could find himself struggling beneath the weight of their social pressure. But still, Paul says, I am not ashamed. And why is he not ashamed? Why is Paul this peasant Jew? Why is he not cowered by the prospect of being overwhelmed by the power of the people? Because Paul knows that the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ far surpasses the power of this world. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Yes, the world has power. The world may have power over my person. The world may have power over my freedom, power over my coming and my going. But Paul is not afraid of their power. Because of the power that is beating in his own breast. Not the power to wage a social or a cultural war. Not the power to ostracize his detractors. It's a different kind of power. And so great is this power that Paul uses the Greek word dynamos to describe it. It's the term from which we derive words like dynamic or dynamite. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is spiritual dynamite. I can blow some stuff up with this. I can overturn nations and kingdoms with this. The Bible says that the disciples of Jesus Christ in the book of Acts turned the whole world upside down with this. That's power. Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not afraid of your power because I have true power. The gospel is power. Dynamite. What is the power of the gospel? The power of the gospel is that it is the power that brings salvation. Freedom, liberation. It is the power that sets men free from the presence of sin, from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin. It is the power that can cause the most powerful of men to renounce their worldly power in exchange for the glorious power that sets them free. Real power Paul has, raw power Paul has. God's power that brings spiritual health, spiritual healing. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power that brings salvation to who? To everyone who believes. It's a non-discriminating power. A power that recognizes no difference between kings and paupers, 
influencers or observers, rich or poor. It is a power that bows to none, loves all, and liberates all who are able to believe it. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes it. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And in saying this, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, uh, this biblical phrase expresses the universality of the human race. The gospel is available to the entire human race. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. It's not a narrow religion that has been given to one particular people group in the world. Paul was a part of a narrow religion before he found Jesus. Paul was a part of a narrow racial religion. The religion of the Jews. And as we study the Old Testament, we see the power of God moving among the Jews like among no other people in history. Parting the Red Sea, routing their enemies, escorting them into the land of promise, flowing with milk and with honey. And the Jews were understood to be the chosen people of God. And the gospel was first declared among them. You know, this particular scripture, first to the Jews, then to the Greeks, this particular portion of scripture is often misunderstood to mean that the Jews were first in importance, that the Jews were first in relevance to God, that God viewed the Jews as more important than the rest of humanity. Some of us think that's what it means as well. But that's not what Paul is saying. The gospel is not to the Jew first in point of importance, but in point of time. The gospel was first delivered to the They were the first ones to hear the message. That's what he means, first in time. The gospel was preached to them first. And Paul's gonna say that a lot later in, in, in the text. But for now, Paul is just laying the groundwork of what he wants to talk to the Romans about. And what he wants the Romans and us to understand is that the gospel is universal and universally available to anyone that believes. That God is not a respecter of person in any sense. That God is not racist. That God is not biased in any sense. That no one nation on earth can lay claim to the mercy or the divine care of God. That God loves all people. That God has made this gospel of power available to all who believe. And this simple truth is going to take on greater and greater importance as we traverse this book. That God has bestowed his divine favor, not upon one particular people, but upon all who believe. And this is the good news. That is by faith in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that any person can be set free from the presence and penalty and power of sin. That any person by faith can have a relationship with God Almighty. Paul says, for in the gospel, 
the righteousness of God is revealed. This term righteousness could better be spoken and said as justice. The justice of God is revealed. In the gospel, the justice of God is revealed. Let me ask you the question. How unjust would God be if he created all mankind but reserved his love and his favor to only one people group? That wouldn't be very just. How just would God be if God did not provide everyone at least an opportunity to respond to his message of love, the prospect of peace? How just would that be? That wouldn't be very just at all. But God has made salvation available to all mankind. He has revealed his righteousness to everyone who believes. It is a righteousness that is by faith. And this is where it starts to get interesting. Because what Paul is going to say in this book of Romans is, is revolutionary. This righteousness of God is revealed to anyone who has faith. Let me ask the question, when did that concept start then? When did this become the new rule? That righteousness would be given to anyone who has faith. What do you think, Eric? When did this become the way? That righteousness will be given to anyone who has faith. Anybody. So you believe it began in Habakkuk? That's when it began? That, that's when the... The thief. The thief on the cross. Okay, so at the crucifixion of Jesus, we believe that it became anybody else? Abraham. <laughs> Abraham. That, that's a very good one. Paul's going to talk about that later on. At Abraham. You believe it started Abraham. Who else? Who else? Who else? The first pages of the Bible. See, you, you got to be careful with these Moody students. They... <laughs> And they, they sometimes mess up the whole thing. <laughs> this concept didn't start to be the case only after the coming of Jesus Christ. This has always been the case. Since the Garden of Eden, the just have always lived. The just have always been, this is not a new concept. It's been this way since the beginning and that's what Paul is going to teach the Romans. This is not something that started with the Jewish people. Paul is gonna say that clearly in the Romans. This has always been the case. When you read the book of Hebrews and they give you the list of all of those with faith, they begin with Abel, not with Abraham. Justification by the grace of God by faith has always been. Since the book of Genesis, it has always been this way. And that's what Paul wants them to understand. Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed to all who have faith from the first to the last. 
Uh, he just said it right there, but he said it so succinctly, you have to read the whole book for him to flesh this out for you, what he's really saying. From the first to the last, from Eden to Armageddon, from Genesis to Revelation, since the dawn of time to this present day, even to the end of the world, the righteous live by faith. The righteousness of God has been revealed. The righteousness of God is being revealed. And the righteousness of God will continue to be revealed to all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's always been that way. This concept of the eternal universality of the righteousness of God to all who believe, it turned Paul's entire theology upside down. It transformed Paul's way of understanding God and all of the stories of the Old Testament. What Paul came to understand, and for whatever reason, believers today and even in yesteryear seem to have a difficult time understanding, is that there really is no Old and New Testament. There is not actually an old and new. There is only one testament, and that testament has been in place since the Garden of Eden. There aren't two testaments. There are not two covenants by which man may receive eternal life. There is only one. There has always only been one. That's what Paul learned 14 years walking in Samaria, rehearsing the scriptures. Christianity is not a new thing that began at the coming of Jesus Christ. Abel believed it. Melchizedek believed it. Noah believed it. Abraham believed it. And Isaac believed it. This is not a new thing. This has always been the way. <laughs> when looked at from that perspective, then Christianity is not a new religion. Just 2,000 years. What we call faith, Christian faith, has always been in play in the world. God, since the Garden of Eden, has only had one requirement, one prerequisite for all mankind, that we believe him, that we place our faith in him. Of all of the problems, of all the character flaws we can see in Adam and Eve, their greatest character flaw was that they did not believe God. The Bible says that God walked Adam and Eve through the entire Garden of Eden, showed them every animal, showed them every tree, showed them every fruit. He showed them the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he also showed them the tree that gives eternal life. If they believed God, you know what they would have done upon hearing that this is the tree of eternal life? they would have eaten from the tree of eternal life. They didn't believe. Then the devil comes into the picture and convinces them, don't believe what God is saying about good and evil. You can eat from this tree. You're not going to die. You're going to become like God. They believe the adversary. They ate from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God turns around and says, I've got to get them out of this garden. Because if they stay here, they're going to eat from the tree of eternal life, and they'll be eternally damned. He didn't put them out of the garden for punishment. He put them out to save their lives. Because now that you've been corrupted, if you eat from this tree of life, you will be forever damned. 
And so he puts them out of the garden because they didn't believe. And now they could not have access to the tree of life in their dead situation. Or they would be forever separated from God. They didn't believe. Faith has always been. Faith will always be the measure by which a person will be found just before God. And what Paul is expressing to the Romans in this letter is that the faith into which they have been baptized is not a Jewish faith. It is not a Jewish faith. The Christian faith is not a derivative of the Jewish religion. It's not. It's not Jewish in the sense, in the sense of a particular race or of a particular religious practice. It's not. Why is this important? Well, I'm sure this was a question that the Roman Christians were challenged with every day. You, Roman citizen, you are among the most cultured people in the whole world. How is it that you've taken, yourself, taken upon yourself to join a religion of peasants? What is this about? That's how the sophisticated Romans would view them. That's how the sophisticated Romans would view Christianity as having its origins in some desert nomads lost in the wilderness who stumbled onto some good land and beat up some timid warriors. That's the story. That's the religion that you're following, the Jewish religion. A God who had let them down in battle for the last thousand years. A God who has allowed them to be overwhelmed by nation after nation and now they're under our power. Why would you degrade yourself by following their failed religion, this peasant religion? You're better than them. You're better than that. You're cultured. You're smarter than that. You're wiser than that. That's what the educated elite in America say to the Christians today. That's some childish religion. That's some imaginary religion that you're following. That's primitive in nature. You need to become more educated. You need to become more cultured. What is this that you're following some peasant religion? What Paul wants them to understand and the very thesis of the work of the book of Romans is that salvation has never been relegated. Salvation has never been administered. Salvation has never been owned and operated by any people group. Salvation is and has always been available to all and to anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ, whether in his coming or in his resurrection and his death. This has always been the message, and faith has always been the means by which men and women of all ages have come into peaceful relationship with God Almighty. By faith in the promises of God. And that's what Habakkuk said. That the righteous or the just will live by faith. And this is an intriguing proposition. And even for some of us sitting here today, this truth may not seem to align with the Old Testament scripture, but they're, they're the chosen people. You can't just say they're, they're, they're just like everybody. They're different. 
as we progress through this book of Romans, Paul is going to flesh out for us this truth. Paul is going to show us how since the beginning, God has been coming into covenant relationship with all sorts of people. How God has given grace to Jews and to non-Jews alike since the very beginning. Matthew tries to do that for us. When he teaches us about the lineage of Jesus Christ to show us that Jesus Christ's lineage was not all Jewish. There were all kinds of people in his lineage. <laughs> Interestingly enough, this, this topic takes on an entirely new relevance in our society today. Where influential people for some reason have decided either to target or to somehow replace the Jewish people out of control. Everybody wants to claim to be a Jew. I'm a Jew. They're not Jews. These people aren't Jews. That's what we're targeting abused people. It's very peculiar. People wanting to replace the Jewish people, claiming for themselves this special relationship with God that the Jews are purported to have. Wanting to exterminate the Jews out of the world from what I can only perceive to be jealousy. I don't know what their reason is. I don't know what the reason is for it. I know that it's diabolical. I also know that they are laboring under a misnomer, that their premise is altogether incorrect. Being a Jew by nature does not confer upon anyone any special standing before God. And being a non-Jew does not relegate anyone to second-class citizenship in heaven. based on a plain reading of the text. Carnal minds trying to grasp spiritual things, always falling into error. And that's what Paul wants us to understand. For 14 years walking in Samaria with his Bible, thinking he understood the word of God and the Holy Spirit day by day, showing him that this thing, this thing you call Judaism, Paul, that's not it. The just shall live by faith. That race and religion has never been the, the standard by which someone may assume a relationship with God. That's not what it's about. God has always and God has only desired one thing from all mankind, that we would believe in him and believe in the one whom he has sent into the world. That has always been the standard. And this is why the prophets in Israel seem so different from the people of Israel. You ever notice that? The prophets of Israel seem so different than the people of Israel. Why? Because they were following the law and the prophet was living by faith. The chosen people of God have always lived by faith. The law has never been a prerequisite for, for pleasing God. It never was. 
We say today, well, they were under the law, see, so the way they had to please God was by being obedient to them. That's never, that's never been the case. That's not true. The just have always lived by faith. <laughs> and the just, the just continue to this day to find eternal life by faith in God alone. That's the whole reason for writing this book. To reveal to them and to reveal to us. To help us to better understand the Old Testament and to learn to see Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the gospel in every book of the Bible. Jesus is all throughout the Bible. Genesis to Revelation, it's always been about him. And the just have always lived by faith. I am so tempted and was so tempted while I was writing this sermon to get ahead of myself and just demonstrate it to you from the book of Romans, but I'm gonna take my time. And I'm gonna walk along with Paul because what Paul just said, uh, brothers and sisters, is revolutionary. And for whatever reason, it's still revolutionary today because even Christians still fall under this misconception that there is some distinct people in the world who have a different calling and a different, and God is saying, there was never a difference. I proclaim the gospel first to them. I use them as an example. That's very important. But no person, no, not Jew, not Gentile, no person shall enter into the kingdom of heaven but by faith. No matter what your race, no matter what your religion, the true people of God are the people of faith. And that's what Paul is going to teach us. This is not about blood, this is not about nation, this is not about nationality. This is about the DNA of faith that resides in only a few in the world. Those, these are the true people of God. For the just shall live. Let's pray. Father God, how amazing it is to understand that eternal life is such an, a universal concept. That your desire since the beginning has been to identify and to save those who put their faith in you. That it doesn't matter where we come from, it doesn't matter where we have been. That if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we will be saved. We will become your chosen people. Thank you, Father God, for this faith that is only a gift. This faith that none of us has earned, but that has been revealed to our hearts by your own Holy Spirit, by the preaching of your word. Father God, I pray that for each of us, you would help us to break down those walls that disconnect us 
from others who are not like ourselves. Help us not to see people and define people simply by race or ethnicity or religion, but to recognize all of humanity as your special creation and to identify those, identify those within your creation in whom you have instilled this gift of faith and to recognize them as our brothers and sisters, no matter their language, no matter their race, no matter their ethnicity. There is no bias in you, only righteousness. And you are not a respecter of persons. Thank you for condescending to save each of us. Thank you for endowing each of us with this special gift of faith that we could never have earned created to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That you sent him into the world, that he died for our sins upon the cross, that he was buried, and on the third day, Jesus Christ raised physically and bodily from the dead. And because of this, each of us has received eternal life by faith in him. Teach us the power of that message. Lord, teach us the power of your gospel. That as we proclaim it to those who do not believe, that they would be blessed with an effective faith to see the truth of the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to run to him for salvation and for forgiveness. Help us not to be ashamed, but fill us with confidence that every word you've spoken to us is true, that the gospel, this good news is true, worthy of our celebration. Because of it, we give you praise. In Jesus' name.